Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. My name is Aaron Flam, and this episode's guest is Thaddeus Russell. Today we will be discussing how prostitutes, drunkards and renegades built modern civilization, if work ethic is something good or bad, and if Eleanor Roosevelt was a mass murderer or not. But first I want to thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism via Patreon, where you will find me by searching for my name, Aaron Flam, that's Aaron with one A and Flam with one M, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Swish 0768-943737. 0768-943737. Every donation helps and you will find links to your preferred way of support in the description of this episode regardless of what platform you're using. There is also a link to my webpage, aaronflam.com, where you will find t-shirts with uplifting messages, such as Crush Socialism, Socialism is Evil, with a heart emoji after the text, so you and others remember that it is the ideology we want to crush, and not its adherents. Or, your feeling are hurting my thoughts, t-shirts and hoodies, which is this podcast's creed, by the way. Your feelings are hurting my thoughts. At aaronflam.com you will also find my book, This is a Swedish Tiger, albeit not in Swedish for now. This is a Swedish Tiger reveals what the Swedes really did during the Second World War and how, via cooperation with Islamists, never really stopped. By the time you hear me say this, the English translation is done, but I'm still looking for publishers in different countries. This is a Swedish Tiger has sold out two editions in Swedish by now, so finding publishers in other countries shouldn't be too hard. The audiobook in Swedish will be released by the end of February, and the ebook around the same time. All will be available on aronflam.com. These last few weeks of beginning of February 2020, Swedish media has not been fretting over the young men getting shot in the streets of Sweden, opting to instead focus on violence against women in Spain. 
Nor have they said anything about the wave of robberies of young ethnic Swedes by gangs of predominantly immigrant Swedes or children thereof, since that would be racist. According to the prevailing logic, or rather lack thereof, racism can only come from the majority population towards the minority and never the other way around. And that is how robbing a fellow human being and peeing in his mouth makes the urinator into the oppressed and his victim into the oppressor, regardless of how confusing it must be for both oppressor and oppress that the act of urination into someone else's involuntarily open mouth has suddenly become a symptom of the aggressor's oppression. I'm sure the child in question would object to the conclusion of this type of intersectional analysis if his mouth wasn't filled to the brink with lukewarm piss. No one has barely mentioned the fact that Stockholm now has a net out-migration, more people are moving out of the capital than into it, something you would think an important problem for a capital city, but no one has had time for such bad omens since both sides of the social democratic political scale instead spend their time accusing the other of being liberal. The left accuses the right of being liberal fascists, while the right hurl accusations against the left for being liberal socialists. Neither is true, of course. Here in Sweden there are just two big groups of collectivists, but this is what happens when you change the meaning of words. A few decades after you start doing that, the confusion is complete and all-encompassing. Instead of battling this or a myriad of other problems, they have instead decided to focus on a commercial for Scandinavian airlines. The commercial has triggered the right by claiming that everything great in Sweden came from some place else, or, quote, elsewhere, end quote, as the commercial states. What is truly Scandinavian, asks the commercial, the viewer, and then adds, absolutely nothing. Everything is copied. It concludes as if copying things couldn't be an original trait for a culture. As far as anyone knows, the Swedes may have invented copying others, couldn't they? Not that it matters. For if it is one thing that a true Swede can't stand to hear is that Swedish meatballs came from, quote, elsewhere, end quote. Ridiculous, I know, but also ironic, considering that the same people now laughing at the right for not wanting to admit influences from the outside world in the development of Swedish culture are the same people that would never admit that gang rapes with streaks of torture or peeing robbery victims in the mouth and then uploading it online could have anything to do with outside influences or, to put it plainly, ethnic violence. As per usual, the chattering classes are focused solely on what is said and not what is actually happening, which is why it keeps getting worse. Thaddeus Russell has been a professor of history, American studies and philosophy at Columbia University, Barnard College, the New School for Social Research, Eugene Lang College, Occidental College and Willamette University. He is also the author of A Renegade History of the United States and the host of the Unregistered Podcast. Links to his webpage and online university can be found at aronflam.com. And although I don't agree with him regarding his theories on work ethic, America's contribution in World War II, or how to relate to fringe phenomena, I have been aggressively curious about his upbringing as a socialist in the United States of America, and I do agree that the rogues, drunkards, and outcasts of humanity has both been neglected in traditional history, and that their contribution has been undervalued. I just think that embracing the fringe normalizes them and makes them, to be quite frank, boring.
I was also very interested to hear his view about labor history in the United States, because that is what Thaddeus Russell's dissertation was about. Our lack of consensus is exactly what makes this a fantastic conversation. And now, Thaddeus Russell. Enjoy. Usually I start out with a very broad question because I'm an individualist. I see a lot written down in longhand, which is scaring me. <laughs> Don't a, lot, a lot of notes here. Uh, there are some. This is, <laughs> this is not unusual for me. So it's not like I'm coming after you in a hard way. This is just a light conversation. I love, I love a well-prepared man. All right. Well, uh, do you really? Because I've done my research and I don't think you do. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> yes. So um, usually I start with a very broad question right. and let you define yourself. So who are you? Who am I? Ouch. That's like the hardest question ever. What do you mean, who am I? Uh, like, what, do you, what, what level of abstraction do you want here, Aaron? As much or as little as you want, oh. because it says a lot about you, I think. If you delve into what you do, or if you, you say, well, I enjoy skiing in the weekends, or... God damn it. Okay. <laughs> all right. I will get way more specific later on. Okay, good. That would be helpful for me. <laughs> it's not all going to be like this. No. Good. All right. Um, I mean, you know, it depends on what you're interested in, but my, in terms of my sort of formal credentials, what you might see on my books or in my articles at, in, the, in the byline, is that I am a former academic. I guess I still am an academic, but a PhD in history, specializing in American history. Got that at Columbia University 20 years ago. Taught as an academic, a regular academic, in about six different colleges and universities in the United States during that time, specializing in history, but also in philosophy somewhat. I am the author of two published books, one on American labor history, and then one called A Renegade History of the United States, which is what I'm most well known for. And now I'm working on a third book, which will be published by Grove Atlantic, hopefully later this year, which is a history of American foreign policy and the effects of American popular culture in particular abroad over the last 150 years. Then, uh, since I left academia about two years ago entirely, I have been focused on my podcast, Unregistered, which has been my pride and joy, the most satisfying, fulfilling thing I've ever done. We just had our 100th uh, episode, actually, this last week. And it's uh, in that podcast, I, I interview many different kinds of people, but the rule is it, it has to be someone who says things that are somewhat dangerous or not allowed in polite society. So I've had everything from simply academics like me who say the wrong things to porn stars, to drug dealers, to prostitutes, to anybody who says or does things that are outside the norms. One can say that you investigate cultural taboos. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I investigate them. I'm interested in them. I'm mostly interested in in how the violation of certain taboos advances the, what I see or what I define as freedom, personal freedom, personal liberty. And I don't mean that in an absolute sense. I mean the way that I define it, the way that I think of freedom. I see certain the certain taboos, uh, the breaking of certain taboos is simply enlarging the freedom that I think is important. Uh, and then also in the last two years, I've been developing, building Renegade University, which is an alternative university that's both online and in person. We have video courses that you can stream, and then we have live events across the country. We've been doing that for two years now. And we just launched our first, our new uh, website. Go to renegadeuniversity.com to see more about this. And so I'm a busy guy. Yes, you are. And we'll get back to the university part okay. uh, at the end of the interview. Cool. Because I want to ask you a few questions Great. about that. Yeah. Uh, but you asked me uh, how I knew about you. Mm -hmm. But first, interestingly enough, uh, you replied with what you do. 
on the right. question. The, the, this Who is, are this you? Is, this is why I hated your question. Yes. That I gave, what I gave you was the American answer, right? Which is my, my career, my job, my profession, right? Yes, your resume. But that's not who I am. Well, I don't know. All I know is that you have a sort of a thorn in your side against work ethic. Oh. And, and yet... Uh-huh. When I ask you right. who you are, right, <laughs> a man of contradictions. You've already noticed this. Indeed, I work. <laughs> I do work a lot, don't I? Jeez, I need to work on that, or not work on that. <laughs> yes, I precisely. I need to not work on that. So, how how did I define uh, find you? Well, I was looking uh, around on the internet for. Uh, uh, well, in the American socialist arena, and somehow mm. alongside mm. Dave Rubin's show. And your own podcast and you being a guest on other podcasts, mm. I just found you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found you to be incredibly interesting because I grew up in Sweden, which is a socialist utopia. Mm-hmm. That's at least what we're trained to say. Social democratic utopia. That's sure. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's be precise here. Yes. Okay. As yeah. a libertarian. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, And my parents weren't libertarian. This is just in my constitution, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always felt kind of like a unicorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you grew up here as a socialist mm-hmm. and wanted from age 10 to become a socialist. Oh, from age, from the earliest I can remember. My parents, when I was born, were not just socialists. They were professional socialists, <laughs> that meaning that they dropped out of normal society and took jobs in heavy industry. Like my stepfather was a truck driver and a steel worker. And my mother was a clerical worker. When they were, they were from basically bourgeois upper middle class families and they could have done anything and they dropped out of elite universities to do this work in order to organize the workers for the socialist revolution, of course. Yes. Problem is it didn't work out. There was no revolution. And so after about 10 years of doing that, they went back into mainstream society and got regular jobs. But so for the first, uh, I'd say 13 or 14 years of my life, that's who my parents were primarily. They were primarily interested in socialist politics. And so I was surrounded by that living also in Berkeley, I don't know if your listeners know about this, but Berkeley is sort of the capital or the hub of the, the American counterculture and has been for a long time and of American radical politics, mostly of the silly sort. Uh, but um, so, yes, I was born into that church. And what I, do you mean when you say church? It's just like being raised in a church. There's sort of assumptions about the world and what should happen in the world and why it's bad and what is good that are unquestioned. Right. It's like what type of assumptions? Give me an example, please. Uh, capitalism is inherently exploitative and therefore needs to be overthrown so that the workers can reap the fruits of their own labor equitably. There you I, go. Isn't that just a fact of life? That's just a fact if you're born in the church. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, there's, you know, socialism, Marxism. It's there's very, very thick books. It's there's a lot of textbooks, a lot of rule books for these things. And uh, it's just like the Bible. And I didn't. The big questions were were never addressed, you know, when I was a kid. And we just sort of assumed all these things. We assumed that anything, anybody to the right of sort of Hillary Clinton was no different essentially than Hitler. Uh, And to be dismissed, there's nothing good to be said about anybody to the right of Hillary Clinton of any stripe. Yeah. And so that was my training. And, but without my parents being deliberate about it, which was nice, but nonetheless, it doesn't matter. They didn't, they didn't brainwash you. They didn't, well, they didn't need to, right? I mean, I was living not only in Berkeley, but I was living with them. Where, I mean, everybody in Berkeley still agrees on every single thing. Everybody in Berkeley basically is on the left and they were in the hard left. So yeah, I went to college with this in mind. Uh, I need to find out what socialism is because I have to be one. I have to be a socialist. And that yes. was actually my mission. So I sat down with the books, started reading Marx and Lenin and all the rest of it. And I did, I, be, I made my, I figured out what it was. 
and I read the great texts, many of the great texts in the history of socialism and learned who the great socialists were. And I became a socialist. I became a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, which I think is Bernie Sanders' organization. Did that. When for, was this? This was in the, like, all through the 1980s. All when right. I was in college. And then when I went to graduate school at Columbia in the early 90s, that was still my mission. And that's why I did labor history for my first book, because that's what a good Marxist socialist does. You look at the working class, labor history, because that's all that matters. Um, and I ended up writing, you're going to like this, the only, as far as I know, essentially libertarian history of labor in America, probably anywhere, in which I argued that competition between unions was a good thing for members of the unions, just like competition between producers or, or businesses is good for the consumers, right? Union members are basically consumers of a service that union leaders Because you're not against deliver. freedom of assembly, for instance. No. So no. They, no, of course not. Yeah. But I'm, you know, but so that argument, that market mechanism actually produces greater accountability among union members seemed to me to make sense. And I showed it with evidence that it was true for many, many large unions. For labor historians, for people on the left in this country, and it was in the New York Times, it was, it was reviewed in the Washington Post and major publications, they just hated it. Because the idea, of course, is that there'd be one big union that rules the world. Yes. You know, the socialist utopia, which is led by the proletariat, the vehicle for that revolution for most socialists is trade unions. And to, and to reduce the number of trade unions and to limit the competition among them. I said, that's just the opposite. It's the other way around. The more competition you have, the more those unions are going to do for their members, Right. And so I was that was the first kick I received from the academic establishment. Um, the second kick was when I moved my attention to African-American history in particular and Martin Luther King and the history of black culture, which was going to be my project after the labor history book. And Because I kind of, you are African-American. I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> yes. Well, you, I, I read a bit about your upbringing and apparently you grew up in uh, partly or at almost entirely black neighborhood it was for a while. It was mixed. I'd say it was about two-thirds black, yeah, when I was growing up there. And that was part of my childhood, not all of it. But yeah, a significant chunk of sort of the middle of my childhood was spent in a in a predominantly black neighborhood. And then the, the schools in Berkeley were were forcibly integrated by busing. I was in the I was in the first generation of school children in this country to be bused. That was in 1970 in kindergarten. So you were bused because you're actually Caucasian. Everybody got bust. I All mean, right. That, that's how. That's how. Um, so they bust in everybody from everywhere. That was like how brilliant. Central. The leaders of Berkeley, the city of Berkeley, where they bust everybody to a different school so that they could achieve perfect parity, racial parity in every school. That's actually what they did. So it was a, it was a gigantic uh, social engineering project. And how has it worked out? Using in children. retrospect, well, they made me black. So you know, it was, <laughs> I think I think they did a pretty good job. I um, no, it had nothing to do with that. It was really the neighborhood I was I was raised in, and being. It was true, like Oakland, we were on the Oakland border, which is a very, you know, it's a largely African-American city. Um, I did simply just become very enamored with African-American culture, what's called African-American culture, and still am. And that was an early influence, still is. In particular, stand-up comedy. Black stand-up com comedians have been my major, among my major influences, like Richard Pryor, Red Fox, Moms Mabley, going back further, Dave Chappelle, you name it. Uh, yep. I think that they... In, I think in many ways they have been the most um, incisive critics of American culture that we've had in the 20th century and the 21st As century. As a Jewish stand-up comedian, I cannot possibly agree with you. Jews are second best. <laughs> I'm a quarter Jewish, so I can say whatever I want, by the all way. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm all black and a quarter Jewish. So, so I'm, this I'm, basically, I'm basically free of any criticism here. So then you wrote a book about African-American history. No, I wrote, I wrote an article about African-American history in which I showed that Martin Luther King was very puritanical 
toward black culture. Didn't like any of it. He didn't even like jazz. He didn't like rock and roll. He didn't like rhythm and blues. He didn't like slang. He didn't like emotional expressions in the black church. He gave these sermons in which he sounded like a, a racist, actually. He was so condemnatory of black culture. And people simply didn't know this. And I found it. It's, you can find it online looking at his sermons from the 1950s. And my colleagues simply didn't believe me because I was challenging the idol, the great idol. This is Martin Luther King. He couldn't have said these things about black people. And I said, well, yes, he did because his project required it. Not because he was a bad guy, but because assimilation requires that. Yes. Our culture, the formal culture of the United States requires that you speak the King's English or Amer good Amer so-called good American English. It uh, requires that you be a good worker, a good soldier, a good citizen. You follow the laws, you obey authority, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, African-American history in particular, working class African-American history is full of people who didn't do those things. Thank God, because if we didn't have them, we would have a much more boring country. A little bit more, I think, like where you're from. But but don't you think that uh, culture is not a zero-sum game? You can have multiple cultures, mm. wouldn't you? Sure. I mean... You can say that they're infinite cultures, right? You can find it right here as a culture. We've created a culture. This this interview has a culture. That is own. one way to look. But, uh, sure. you know, from a group perspective, I mean, you could, yeah. um, for instance, I have Jewish culture, but I also have Swedish culture mm -hmm. because I know the language and language is culture, right? Sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, you can define culture in any way. It's what I So I try to be as precise as possible. So I, I use the term working class African-American culture, which simply means people not only worked had to work for a living but people who were not aspiring to be leaders of the society they were not seeking to become sort of you know politicians or generals or to to become members of the managerial class of America right they just wanted to live to live their lives right unlike people like Martin Luther King or Barack Obama right who clearly have aspirations to become fully a part of the managerial class the ruling class of the United States which requires that you wear a business suit It requires that you obey the Puritan work ethic. It requires that you have a wife and two or three kids, and that's it. It requires that you you, be, you show no sexuality whatsoever. It requires that you be a good father if you're a man, if and, or a good wife if and good wife and a mother if you're a woman, etc. So that's what King was preaching to African Americans. He said, "You have to change. You have to get rid of this all this stuff from slavery." That, by the way, gave us blues and gave us jazz and gave us a much of American. English, really, and much of a sort of a way of being with our bodies and gave us, you know, great entertainers and great athletes and all the rest of it. He said, get rid of all of that because we got to be like the white man. He actually said explicitly, we must adopt the norms of the dominant culture. Hmm. I'm uh, glad you brought up uh, work ethic. Yeah. Because um, you got to decide the time for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> and you said five o'clock. And then you changed it to four o'clock. And then you... <laughs> on a Saturday. On a Saturday. <laughs> yes. And then you changed it to 4.30. And then you sent a text message via Waze that uh -huh. you would be arriving at exactly 4.09. Oh, did I? And then you came. I don't know when you arrived, but you sat in your car until five. And then you texted me, I'm here. How do you decipher all of that? What do you make of that? Um, I have no idea. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I, I don't either. <laughs> I, I'm just asking you because we're. I'm going to ask you a question on work ethic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I know you admire slackers in a way. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. So uh, that's because this was such a strange thing that that you would you know you'd want to push uh, the interview earlier. That, that I mean because that indicates that you're eager to go. Yeah. And then. I say, no, but you booked it for five. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I honestly thought I'd booked it for four, and I was driving here from the Bay Area. So, um, so here's the here's I think what you're getting at. Um, why do I work so hard if I don't believe in the work ethic? Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And we're gonna and we're gonna I, talk quite a bit about this. And why am I on time or even early when I don't when I when I praise slackers in my book and elsewhere? Yes. Okay. So there's there's two there's two attitudes toward work in American history, and I think there's two attitudes toward work in in general. One is it is a means to an end. Okay. That is just a practical consideration. It's hard to deny that. You know, in the world that we live in, in this in this level in this consciousness that you and I share, like. If I want to move this glass from here to here, I have to do a little bit of work with my hand. Okay? Yes. If you want to own a car, you've got to, in this society, in this culture, you have to do something to make money so that you can buy the car. Okay? That requires work, almost always, of some kind. I don't dispute that. It's indisputable. That is very different from viewing work as a good in itself, as virtuous in itself, no matter what you get for it. That is what we call either the Puritan or the Protestant work ethic which people from Scandinavia know a little bit about, right? So that's what I critique in my work. That's why I, when I talk about slackers and how I like slackers, it's people who, it's not people who uh, are homeless and have no nice things because they refuse to work at all. It's people who disobey the Puritan work ethic, who work only to get the good stuff and not one minute more. Those are my heroes. Um, why? Uh I simply don't like work. When I talk about, when I say work, what I mean is work that is, that you wouldn't do otherwise, right? That you would just for money. Yeah. Right. You do it for whatever you get. From because it. you love what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And also, but I do it for the money too. Right. Yeah, I, obviously. But yeah. you probably, I mean, in your case, it seems more as if though you've found a way to monetize I, your pleasures. Right. We are among the very, very few who are able to do for money what we like to do. Right. So yes, that is yes. an extremely privileged, extremely, position. I'd say rare position at least. I don't know if it's privileged, but yeah, it's certainly rare. So yeah. Um, but what I think is terrible is people who, who shame those who don't work, who shame those who don't think the work is good. I think that's the reason that Americans work more on average than any other people on earth by country. I, I except, think you I, might be quite except right. I think Hong Kong is the only place that beats us. Really? But certainly compared to all the European countries, it's way, we work but way more. But the Japanese more. then? I, know, I think we work more than the Japanese as well. But yeah, I might but be they pretend that. to work more. They, they, just look, they just look busy. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I'll, right. I'll give you a tidbit from the Swedish language. Okay. And that is that the, wor uh, the word for having a hard time in Swedish is actually derived from the ver verb to work. Ah. So it's like uh, to, uh, you're going to work. Yeah, it's worky. Right. Uh, so you see? Uh -huh. But you don't really have that here, do you? No, because we think work is good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and also, I'm worried about this... Uh, this um, attack you're, you're launching against the libertarian idea of uh, uh, importance that we ascribe to the work ethic. Oh, because okay. I think there is something... Oh, see, I, I think I'm much more libertarian than you are on this. I think my position on work is the, liber is the correct libertarian position on work. I'm sure you okay. think so. Okay. And, and this is uh, <laughs> the, the subject that we're going to discuss for cool. the next few minutes. Let's do it. Uh, because you want to put the libertine back in libertarian. And I don't mind libertines. I live with at least two here. I was going to say, now. look at this, where we're sitting right now, if you can see it. <laughs> yes, but uh, <clears throat> I've seen you uh, pull out an iPhone and say um, something on the lines like, we created this iPhone in order uh, to uh, be more efficient so that we could work less, but instead we work more. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to pose the question, 
if the work ethic was what led to the iPhone, which could make us work less, in your opinion, mm -hmm. but if we did, we would be as poor as people were before the iPhone, wouldn't we? And the work ethic. And isn't that a contradiction and or paradox? Mm. Well, there's a, there, you're presuming something. First, the whole question is, is based on the presumption that Steve Jobs invented the iPhone or whoever it was at Apple because of the work ethic. Um, I doubt that, first of all. I you think it was the acid? <laughs> the acid played a, psychedelics can be very productive, I've heard, especially when you microdose. Uh, the, um, but if it, even if it were the product of the work ethic, and it, I think in part it had to be simply because he's an American, it's deeply ingrained in almost all of us. Yes, I can tell sitting across from and, you. There you go, right? Um, sure, the Puritan or Protestant work ethic has tremendous benefits. We are, you know, we're overlooking Los Angeles, much of which was built because of that, right? Just all the work that Americans have done famously, we're famous for how much work we do, right? I mean, the Europeans have made fun of us for 200 years yes. for this, right? You know this, right? Because they're lazy. And that's what I've heard and drink a lot and fornicate. The, uh, it has certainly built a lot of bridges. It has certainly built a lot of roads and airplanes and bombs and airplane and, uh, and, uh, electrical grids and beautiful houses like this one, et cetera. Sure. Of course, when you work a lot, there's things going to be built. That's, that was the point is, should we enjoy it? And the Puritans said, no. In fact, they said, you should not build things, make things, produce things that are enjoyable in those ways and sensual ways. They should only please God. They should only serve the purpose of building God's community on earth. The city upon a hill is what they said. If you make money, which they wanted you to do, Puritans, they said, work and make the money, but don't invest it in yourself. Don't glorify yourself. Don't aggrandize yourself. Invest it in the community, God's community. And don't make fancy things, ostentatious things like much of Los Angeles is, right? Yes. They would look down on that very much. But they would like maybe the, the, the water system and the power grid and some of the buildings here, the plain ones, right? The functional stuff. You have highways in the sky. Uh-huh. That's right. That's and I enjoy that immensely. That's where you end up. Yeah. So, um, so that, does that help clarify? Is that? Well, I, I like what you're saying. And I've watched quite a few lectures with uh -huh. you online. Uh, I'm just worried that if we apply your theory full on, mm -hmm. full out, mm -hmm. that, um, that uh, we won't see the next iPhone. Because people will stop working when they find out that work is not godly. Yes. I don't get it. I mean, people are motivated. First of all, this work ethic thing that Americans have, pretty much we're the only ones who have it, right? Yes. It's not in Europe, we know, because you're a bunch of lazy slackers. Look at the number of hours worked in we Europe. We have five to six weeks paid vacation yeah. every year. It's like hundreds of hours more we work per, on average per year. It's for every European country compared yes. to every... Okay. And, and simply, you know this, there's the idea of work being godly in itself is not a thing in Europe or much of the world. It's really only here, as far as I know. So, I mean, I think there's been quite a bit of quite a bit of productivity outside the United States, number one. Yes. I think, you know, your, your people have produced quite a lot of stuff, you know, without... Ikea. You know, yep, there you go. But you have to assemble the furniture Not, yourself. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but your cars come fully assembled. We like those. Yeah. You know, so uh, that's number one, right? We And in fact, productivity uh, per work hour is higher in Europe than it is here. So, I mean, there's no reason we can't have lots of good stuff. You guys live just as well as we do, right? And you work a lot less. Okay? Well, we have less stuff, I think. Or, uh, you not know, much what, less, though. What Klein called the tyranny of choice is not as tyrannical in my country as it is here. Okay. You may have fewer choices, but you, I think your quality of living materially is about the same, right? I, Sweden would definitely qualify, yeah, yes. I think most European countries do. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I mean, I was in France just not long ago. I was in Greece just before that. And they looked pretty much like America in terms of how people lived. What parts of Greece were you in? I, I did not see any evidence <laughs> of the economic crisis. I was there a year and a half ago. I did not see. I'm sure it's there, but I, I was in Athens. I was all across the Peloponnese. And then I was in the islands. And I never saw anything that looked like an economic crisis going you, on. You, you didn't see the refugees wallowing up no. on shore? You, did, you didn't? No. I, I was in Kos just a year and a half ago. Yeah. Uh, and I was standing in the water looking at refugees coming my way they were just wading past me I'm upwards sure, i'm sure i i was i meant more the economic crisis in greece i did not it did not look like a poor country or country that was in, in crisis that's all i know oh, i know the refugees no, 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 no. i know the refugees are coming in for sure. i think of greece uh kind of like if the eu is like the united states in any way shape or form greece is our arkansas right it's never gonna yeah. do uh, great numbers yeah but but we're gonna have to pay for them anyway sure but arkansas compared to most of the rest of the world is a wealthy man's paradise That is true. That is true. As is Greece. And you talk a little bit about the three-day weekend and where it comes from. Two-day weekend. Yes, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I was listening to your lecture just before you came in mm. here about mm. uh, why we have a two-day right. two weekend. Right. Can you please explain to my listeners? I mean, it's, it's my argument, yes. Um, with There's quite a bit of evidence to support it. So the, we know from... Em employers' records, employers' complaints, employers' even lawsuits, but we have from their own written notes, their diaries from the 19th century in the United States and the first factories that were built here. We know from that that employees who were first working in these, in these factories for you know usually 12, 14, 16 hours a day weren't accustomed to it and tended not to be very efficient, not very industrious, and most of all, they had a hard time obeying the clock. Why is that? It was brand new to them because they, they had just come from the fields they had just they were basically the, the american version of peasants they had come from family farms usually in new england or upstate new york or somewhere in the south into the city where there was a factory right or into some town where there was a factory and before then when you're on a farm you know you don't have a clock you have the roosters and you have nature you have sun rising and setting that sets the rhythm of the day suddenly it was a mechanical device regimenting the day and regimenting you and making essentially you into a machine. And ever since then, all of us have been working and living according to that damn thing. Because productive society needed that it, we invented it time. Certainly, it certainly, you know, it has been believed, and I can't deny this, that it makes people more efficient, right? And it makes society more efficient, of course, right? But there's a, also a price to pay, isn't there, right? I mean, so it's not that I'm opposed to work. I'm not opposed to efficiency, It's just that we need to always be cognizant, I think, of the price that we pay for that. And often Americans just push that aside and say, just keep working, keep working, make yourself more efficient, make yourself into a machine, and then I guess you're going to go to heaven. Yes. Or but, something, but they don't even, sometimes they don't even get that far. They just say, keep making yourself more efficient, push, push harder. And that, you'll see that in our sports culture a lot, right? And I think a lot of kids get this from sports culture. Uh, the harder you work, the harder you work as an athlete, the more the commentators will praise you. That's what they praise first, more than athletic uh, ability often or, or uh, in innovation. If it's the hardworking athlete on the team they really love, right? Yes, work ethic. Yeah, same yes. thing, right? Regardless right. of what you get for it is what I'm saying. That's, that's the stuff I don't like. That's why I think we work a lot and don't enjoy it nearly – don't enjoy the fruits of our labor nearly as much as we could. In, in essence, you prefer a football player with pure talent who, who never uh, goes to practice but scores a shitload of goals. I admire both. Right. I'm just saying that American culture skews heavily – the formal culture, the top-tier culture, skews heavily toward favoring the guy who works hard over the guy who's very talented.
Because it was very interesting. You've gone through evidence from the, the middle management were the ones that really discovered that they couldn't get people to work. Right. Uh, and uh, why is that? Can you describe a typical work week back in the day here in the United States? Yeah, so in the 19th century, you mean, when it started? Yes. Yeah, so as I said, they were typically 12, 14, or 16-hour work days, usually about six days a week. So it was, you know, 60 to 80 hours, something like that on average, which is an incredible amount. In a factory, usually in a mill. But they weren't terribly efficient. No, I mean, because they'd never worked the machines before, nor had the managers managed a, a company before. But And they didn't have armbands with clocks on them. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And so, but also they just, they showed up late because they weren't used to getting, you know, waking up with a clock and they took long lunches and they left sometimes early because again, same thing. They just, it was, it was the regimentation of human beings that was being resisted at that time. Right? And these are the slackers, as you call yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so and they actually many of them were women. So the first many of the first uh, textile factories in this country were staffed primarily by women. So it was young women who were doing this, and then it was immigrants after that who did the same thing because they were coming from pe- truly peasant cultures, often in southern and eastern Europe. And they would get here and they'd be in some big giant box with a giant machine in front of them, and they were told to turn and screw the same way for twelve hours a day. And as you might imagine, there was a lot of resistance to that. You yes, know? a lot of drinking on the job that was expected and. So that's when, expected. Sure. Yeah. There was so much drinking. It was so common that in early 19th century, at least employers were expected to provide grog and beer and rum to the workers. Awesome. Right. Yes. We got to get back to that. <laughs> or, so, well, we, I, or introduce weed, one or the other. Yeah. Well, you have uh, come a long way then, I suppose. Indeed. Uh, so, so, uh, and the managers tried to get these people to work, but they noticed that the efficiency went down towards Friday. Mm. And didn't pick up until Tuesday mm-hmm. or something like right. that. Right. Again, we're, this is the early 19th century, so before the Civil War. But yes, we have a lot of records from employers complaining about how there was, the drinking would sort of ramp up, increase through the week. And so by Friday, they were just so, uh, what is it, snack? What do you guys, what, what's drunk and what do you guys say in Sweden? Flat out drunk. Flat maybe? out drunk yes. is the Swedish term. Okay. <laughs> flat, they were so flat out drunk, they couldn't work. And so employers essentially gave up on trying to make them work on the weekends and then, on Mondays, it has been said by many, including Ben Franklin, that um, that say on by they would drink even more over the weekend. So the Monday they were hung over again. So they got essentially a three day weekend. You were right when you originally misspoke, actually. Um, and they called that uh, you know this better than I do. What's it called? Saint Saint Monday, or they had a name for it. It was Saint um, Saint something Monday. It became a name, yes. a sort of an informal holiday among employers and employees in early America. That all changed, began to change after the Civil War, and the immigrants come in, and then there's an assimilation campaign, a massive assimilation campaign of the immigrants trying to make them fit into this capitalist, industrial, advanced culture. But also, from 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 all the evidence con- uh, collected from these middle manager, managers that they couldn't make these people work, they would work themselves to death if they tried, mm-hmm. that is where the two-day weekend comes from. They just realized oh. if we are to keep up productivity... right then we have to give them two days off. That's exactly right. Yes, that's right. Right. So so employers started to just voluntarily reduce the work day and the work week because of this, because they couldn't make these people work 12 to 16 hours a day doing the same repetitive motion over and over again. So employers largely voluntarily reduced the work day and work week. Then trade unions come in and they see this. And they're also, by the way, very imbued with the Protestant work ethic as well. They're part of American culture and they want their workers to work hard and they want mostly they want workers to honor work as virtuous and they saw that 
forcing them into these factories and working in these ter- terrible conditions actually made workers veer away from the Protestant work ethic and become more debauched and degraded and less attached to work. And so trade unions and employers and the government essentially came together at the end of the 19th century and said, okay, to fix this problem of widespread slacking and most of all, this uh, flouting of the Protestant work ethic that this country was founded upon, we will put laws in place, regulations in place, reducing the workday and work week. So trade unions and the government have gotten credit for the weekend when in fact it was drunks and slackers. Who forced them. Who forced them to do it, precisely. Right. And and that is why you think uh, slacking off is actually kind of a freedom fighter thing to do. In that case, yeah, I think they should be on our coins and, and dollar bills, those people. And I, I, I can't tell you how to run your currency. So if, <laughs> if you ever get the chance to head up the National Reserve, I suppose, uh, or the Treasury. Or the, yeah, Treasury, I think, does that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this, of course, in, in my mind, must have to do something with our biology as well. We can't work mm. seven days a week. It's not healthy, even though that's probably the natural state. But in the natural state, we didn't live that long anyway. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Because. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, you also say that uh, show, uh, shaming sex workers for selling their bodies is irrational. Since we all sell our bodies in... Uh, one way or another, but regardless of whether it is rational or not, since humans aren't very rational creatures, don't you have to admit that this differentiation between selling your body as a football player and selling your body as a prostitute exists? Uh, first of all, I don't think I say that it's irrational. No, I said oh. it was irrational. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, uh, because it is, because, right, because, yeah. for instance, you're yeah. selling your body now. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Because you. you're promoting yourself and mm-hmm. something that I, you're I doing. I brought my body here. I'm sitting my body down. I'm using my mouth. I'm using my eyes. Yep. Yep. Okay. So that's one way of selling your body. Right. So, and, and the football player might be selling his body or yep. a soldier is definitely selling his body in the most unless dangerous he's, unless way. Unless he's conscripted, unless he's drafted. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. If he's volunteering. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so is a prostitute. Mm-hmm. So rationally, if you look at it, there should be really no difference. That is my, and that is my argument. Yes, I, just th- I think that is your yes. argument. Okay. Am, am I yes. incorrect? No, that's correct. Yes, yes. Exactly. But for humans, mm-hmm. there exists a difference in every culture in every time, I think. On this question, you mean? Between prostitution 
as as selling your body and all the other forms of selling your body. Of course, yes. I mean, this culture, many cultures, most cultures have drawn a line between that kind of work and all other kinds of work. Yes. Right, which is what has put women on the streets and under overpasses, under bridges, in danger, put them in under the under the control of pimps and criminals and all the rest of it. I think it's done terrible damage to many, many, many people over two centuries in this country for, for no good reason. In other words, so sex workers say who are part of the sex worker activist movement here, rights movement is that sex work is work. Prostitution yes. is work. It's selling your body just like you and I are selling our bodies right now. Y- yes. But humans always seem to make that distinction between uh-huh. sex work and other types of work. I mean, that is not only true for Christians. It's true in Japan where you have a geisha if you want sure. to have fun at night and then you have your wife at home mm-hmm. or in the Middle East back in the day, they had concubines and wives. And, mm-hmm. and I thought that has to do with reproduction and controlling reproduction where your legitimate children comes from, the ones that are supposed to inherit the fruits of your labor mm-hmm. and, and your bastards. Mm. Yes. Each culture is different on this, right? And so some cultures are very lenient toward prostitution. Go to Thailand, go to Bangkok, you'll see, right? A very huge difference between there and here. And much of Asia is like that. Much of uh, even Europe and Europe, Germany is very different, right? Amsterdam is famously different than we are. And yes. All we have a very interesting law. And in Sweden, Sweden, of course, the Swedish model is not my favorite. And a uh, lot of uh, you, you know what we have done. Yes, this, yes. Uh, you've criminalized the, the procuring of prostitution rather than the selling of it. Yes. So what do you think about I'm, that? Please so, tell me. I am against that. Why? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't, why should any of it be criminalized? Why should any of it be illegal? Any, be, any, be, because men come from the patriarchy and women do not. I see. Right. That is, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that, yes, that is the argument that's made by uh, what are called prohibitionists, people who want to continue to pro- prohibit uh, prostitution or sex work. Usually that's the feminist argument against it. Yes. Right. Is like, that, is it, it, it replicates patriarchal relations between men and women. They don't seem to have a problem with men selling their bodies no. for sex. No, there is a bit of a double standard there, I would say. Yes. Yeah. It's probably because we're better at it. So I'm not sure we, we agree then. No, we're not seeking consensus here, Go, good, for okay. God's sake. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> just checking. So, so, uh, because, uh, the line of your questioning, I just wasn't sure if you were like trying to get, in a Socratic way, get me to, to, to show a contradiction or to show a difference between I us. I always you... try to, to uh, sort of expose contradictions, but awesome. I also want you to be at your best, okay. and, I, and I think you can handle it. Of course I can. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Because I, I, I liked your idea that the suffragettes and this is not your words, these are my words, uh-huh. so that the listener won't think that I'm uh, just saying what you think. It's uh, that uh, basically the suffragettes killed feminism in a way. Mm. How so? Well, uh, your idea is that the first free women who could work and make money and attain power were actually mm-hmm. uh, prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. In the book, I show that in the 19th century again, but all the way to the 1920s, uh, prostitutes, so-called prostitutes in this country, were by far the best paid. They were the wealthiest women in this country. They were the basically the only women who owned significant property, usually real estate, not just brothels, but they used the proceeds from their, their businesses, their brothels, to buy real serious real estate, especially in the West. Denver, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, those cities were in large part built by prostitutes and, and madams, the owners of brothels. Uh, prostitutes in the 19th century enjoyed all kinds of freedoms, or I should say they practiced all, all sorts of freedoms that were taboo at the time that we now take for granted, like wearing makeup, like coloring your hair, like wearing uh, brightly colored clothes, like showing skin, 
like dancing in public, like smoking in public, of course, being sexual in public, right, was a part of it, which is totally taboo in the Victorian era. Prostitutes just flouted all those rules and did what they wanted. And lo and behold, by the 20th century, virtually every American woman had adopted their style, their culture, and these new ways of being that were formerly taboo and now we take for granted. So makeup really comes from the sex industry. It really does. Yeah. I mean, Kathy Pice is a great historian from the University of Pennsylvania. She's written an entire book about this. It's called Hope in a Jar, and it's the history of the, the cosmetics industry. And she shows that it's been largely built on sex work. That is so fascinating, and I think most women in, in Sweden today would find it very insulting. Troubling. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's indisputable. Um, the, the sort of famous flapper hairstyle of the 1920s, the short bobbed hairstyle, which yes. is the rage here in, and in Europe. And also my fiancé has that hairstyle ah, today. Well, so. <laughs> don't, don't let her listen to this. So that is well known to have been pioneered by prostitutes and brothels in New Orleans. We have photo, photographic evidence of, of prostitutes in, in the 1900s, well before the flappers came along, with that hairstyle. So the, the flappers took it, then it became very stylish in the 1920s. By the 1930s, the first ladies of the United States, the president's wives, have those hairstyles. So Eleanor Roosevelt's formal portrait in the White House is her wearing a flapper slash prostitute hairstyle. Oh, I, I've always loved Eleanor Roosevelt. Not me, except uh, for that. Well, mainly for the quote that she is, uh, well, there's a quote described to her that uh, small minds discuss people, average minds discuss events, and great minds discuss ideas. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, it's a good quote. She's all right for a mass murderer. Who did she murder? Oh, I mean, she was part of the, I mean, she was essentially part of the Roosevelt administration, which in my view, murdered millions of people. Where? All, in, across much of the world. It's a thing called World War II. You mean in a grand politician's sort of way? Yeah, like calling for the bombing of you know city, cities with civilians in them. And well, so did Obama. This is right. Yeah. This is correct. He just did it on a smaller scale. Yeah. And uh, it's sort of a prerequisite uh, if you're the president of the United States. You're going to have to oh, sure. at some point in time. Sure. It's just that the Roosevelt's did more killing than I think any other president in history, which is saying something. I really? Think their body, I think their body count's number one. Yeah. Hmm. For sure. Yeah, if you look at the Germans and the Japanese who were killed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Truman's probably a, a close second, you know, but we're talking many millions of people needlessly killed by those people. So, Well, were they needlessly killed? Indeed, I think. The Germans and the Japanese? In my view, yeah. That's, that, that's, During that's a, a certain point in time? Yeah, in my view, yes. That's, that's we're the, talking like late 30s, middle 40s here? Correct. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to do this now, this is my, the book I'm working on now. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so there's the, there's the Pacific War, right? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about U.S. involvement. So there's the Pacific War, and then, of course, there's U.S. involvement in Europe and North Africa. So the Pacific War, and I'd say this is a majority opinion among historians, a solid majority, close to a consensus opinion, is that, so it's not just me and my radical thinking, that Roosevelt forced the Japanese into, attack, into attacking Pearl Harbor through essentially economic uh, exploitation and, um, and blackmail. I mean, he, he cut off their supplies. It's an island with no natural resources. 90% of their steel and iron was coming from the United States. He cut all that off. So they were forced to move outward into these islands in the Pacific where they had those natural resources. And Roosevelt and the administration knew that, and they deliberately did it. Um, there was no to re- get into the war. There was no, re- yeah, there was no but, reason. But if he hadn't, uh, I mean, uh, uh, put a limit or curb their uh, steel production, 
they would have just continued to kill people in China, wouldn't they? So they had certainly had invaded Manchuria. So what do you have against the Chinese? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the Japanese were not a nice empire at all. Uh, they were a murderous, uh, mass raping uh, empire. Not the people, but the empire, the the government. And yes, certainly in, in China and also in Southeast Asia, they did plenty of pillaging and raping and killing. This is true. Uh, they never. I mean, these are not easy questions. No, no, no. But I'm, what I'm giving you is pretty much a, all close to a consensus view of this among historians. So again, this is not even just me. This is most historians. Um, their ambitions never went beyond that, though. The, the Japanese Empire they they wanted to avoid any confrontation with the United States. They wanted to trade with the United States because that's where they got most of their stuff from. So they did everything they could to avoid confrontation with the United States. It was the last thing they wanted. They did, in fact, want to take control of a certain portion of Asia, including North, northern China, Manchuria, for the natural resources there. Um, not a nice thing or not a great thing. No. But there was no reason to kill tens of millions of people for it, nor was there a reason to firebomb all of their cities. Yes, and, well, they killed tens of thousands of people for it, in, or Chinese, if you consider them to in, be Indeed, people. but so that was a regional war, right, going yes. on, that we made into a world war by entering it. Well, you can also choose who to do business with. Sure. Uh, I come from Sweden, so I know a bit about this. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and then the German, and then the, the European war side, this is the more controversial, obviously, argument I make, although it is becoming, I'd say, close to a majority opinion. Yeah, I think this is true among German and British historians. American historians are the last to find out about things, but uh, that Hitler's ambitions were similar, that he only wanted Eastern Europe. He only wanted Russia and Poland. Uh, and he never had any interest in keeping Western Europe. He had no interest at all in attacking the United States. He wanted, again, also to be partners with the U.S. So the last thing he wanted was the U.S. and the Allies to attack him. He simply wanted Lebensraum in the East, in Poland and Western Russia. Which is bad enough, I think. Sure, and that, that involved killing lots of Poles, and, and also, uh, but also the Nazi policy vis-a-vis Jews until the day after Pearl Harbor, it's very important. From 1933, when they take power, all the way to the fall of 1941, the official policy of the Nazi party toward Jews was to move them out, migrate them out of Germany, first to Palestine, and then when that was stopped by the British, then to Madagascar, and that was stopped by the Allies refusing, all of them, including the United States, to take Jewish refugees, any of them, and by starting the war by invading against Hitler so he no longer could do that. So that I argue that U.S. intervention in the war against Germany didn't cause the Holocaust, but it necessitated it. Uh, there are aspects of this that I can actually agree with, but uh, you have to understand, first of all, the British were uh, on the side of the Arabs that uh, that's were, right. That's were, right. were in the Palestinian protectorate right. at the time. That's why they started. And, 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 right. and, and the Arabs really didn't want Jews there. Sure. Uh, You've heard of Al-Jamin al-Husseini. This is why, yeah, I know. This is why Churchill started shooting and bombing the ships carrying Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany to Palestine. Yeah. Yes, because of this. Um, very few people know this, but there are books written about it by credentialed historians that the Nazi regime with international Zionist organizations formed an alliance to move German Jews and, and Austrian Jews to Palestine. They co-established the state of Israel. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So many, many, wait, wait, wait. many, many original Israelis were moved there by the Nazi regime. 
this is a fact. Yes. Okay. Yes, this is a fact. Yeah. Uh, but also, since he couldn't move them there anymore, when you deprive people of the means to support themselves and you move them into ghettos, you've already started a holocaust. Uh, because because if people can't support themselves, they can't get food and certainly. you know and in in and also what Hitler wanted to do was not only uh, he wanted all of Germania. So he wanted all the Germanic tribes and right. and, and Lebensraum in the east. Right. But he wanted uh, the entire Germania, which includes all of Scandinavia, by the way. Uh, I have not seen evidence for that, frankly. Well, I live there. Well, <laughs> well I'm, I'm Jewish. In, okay, therefore you know his. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but I've also written a 461-page book about it. Uh, okay. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll show you the, the English translation when okay. I'm done by the he, end of January. You believe that Hitler wanted to invade, occupy, and keep permanently... In his possession, not not necessarily. Per, no, 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 no. Part of it. No, no. Well, what he wanted was a sort of Aryan mini EU, Judenfrei EU, with some Lebensraum in the east. That's mm. what I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Again, so, so yeah, but, yeah, okay. uh, the countries, the Germanic countries, he occupied was basically to fulfill this vision. Um, okay. I mean, the ev- I, I will just say that most historians disagree with you on this. As far well, as I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. But, but we all agree that he had murderous intentions, certainly uh, vis-a-vis the Poles and, and the Russians. M- no doubt about it. What's interesting is, and this is the thing that sort of blew me away when I did the research, I didn't know this myself, is that he drew a, Hitler drew a very sharp distinction early in his career when he first joined the Nazi party between two kinds of anti-Semites. One kind he called the anti-Semites of emotion. Those were the Russians who would go on pogroms, these sporadic, spontaneous lynchings of Jews in the streets, right? They were not planned. They weren't organized. They weren't efficient, most importantly. He didn't like that, and he didn't like Russians either. He thought they were inferior to stupid. They were the stupid anti-Semites. They, they, they uh, were ruled by emotions. He called himself and the Nazis the anti-Semites of reason. Yes, And he said, instead of just killing these people, you got to line them up and march them out. And you have to find a place to put them. It was not actually a lethal policy until 1941. It was, a, I mean, you could say it was partly lethal. It's no, a, I would say it's definitely lethal, lethal from 1935. Uh, well, there are hardly any, there's a tiny, tiny number of Jews who were killed in that period from 35 to 41. For, until, until the summer of, thir- until the summer of 41, until the invasion of Russia. Just, well, 1938, ta- Kristallnacht. I mean, I'm talking about, yeah, I know, but that, even that night, there was a, compared to the murders of the Holocaust, yes, yeah, but that was German efficiency at its finest. And partly because of the Kristallnacht, because in the Kristallnacht, what happened was that the Germans descended into the barbarians, of, uh, into the barbaric traditions of, of Russians That's right. and Poles. And Hitler and much of the Nazi leadership did not like Kristallnacht and disciplined many of the officers for it. Uh, yes, nor did so most of Europe. Did. When I've read the Swedish uh, newspaper articles at the time, they're not shocked that people are killing Jews, but they're shocked that it's... Uh, anarchic. An- uh, anarchic is what they didn't like. Anarchic? Anarchy? Yeah, but that it was... Uh, yeah, it wasn't efficient and it wasn't for a culture welfare nation we uh, have, like Germany at the time. It yeah. was considered uh, beneath them. We have su- sufficient evidence, I think, that Hitler and Goering and other top Nazi leaders were appalled by Kristallnacht, not because it, Jews were hurt, but because it made it more difficult to get them out of the country fast. That's all they wanted. They just wanted to get rid of them fast. Yep. And that was not the way to do it because all of a sudden all the world is against them and then Hitler and the people are closing off the shipping lanes to get them out and et cetera. The allies, the United States, again, I'm going to state this again because people don't know this, the allies, all of them, including the United States, did not admit 
any significant number of Jewish refugees from 1933 till 1945. Okay. One of the great humanitarian crimes of all time, in my view. And yes. so just that alone, I mean, gives much of the blame to the Roosevelt administration right there and the United States. Thank you so much. We weren't supposed to talk about this as okay. at all, but it's quite interesting. And this is in your next book. Correct. I have to send you the script of my book when I'm uh, cool. when I have an English translation. I have a first draft, but I don't think it's good enough for you, sir. <laughs> uh, sure. Okay. Sure. I'm sorry. I, I used sir. It should have been sure. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> we were actually on prostitution. Oh, of all things, yeah. <laughs> and and um, and. Um, I, and you already knew about our legal system to sell sex. Do you? Uh, yeah. and so that's pretty impressive in itself that you know so much about that. And so I have a, a final question on your uh, book, uh, Renegade History of the United States, which is, are you uh, saying that uh, we should all bring in... Because No, there's one more question I want to ask you before, because we've done slackers now mm -hmm. and we've done the prostitutes, mm -hmm. but I want to talk uh, briefly about the gangsters. Yeah. Yes, because you think uh, they have contributed to our great civilization as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, can you please tell my listener how? Sure. So, uh, well, in many ways, uh, in this country, the mafia, so-called mafia, and that's both the Sicilian mafia and the Jewish mafia. Yay. Yep, there you go. Uh, mostly in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, did a lot of things that we would consider to be progressive now. As a matter of fact, so the first thing, most obvious thing is during Prohibition, when alcohol was illegal in this country in the 1920s, who sold most of the alcohol, right? It was, yes. We know this, the gangsters, right? And so without them simply supplying this, this uh, forbidden product, we may never have ended Prohibition. We could still have, uh, we could still look a lot like a Christian colony. Right? So the reason we can have a drink in a bar today in America. In large part. Is because of gangsters. In large because part. we had pro prohibition for a while in Sweden as well. Mm -hmm. It's a pro Protestant country, as you mm -hmm. may know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in large part, yes, I give them a lot of credit for that. Uh, they also created speakeasies, which were these underground bars here that were illegal. And those are the first public bars where women were allowed, where gays were allowed, where blacks and whites were allowed together, where immigrants came in. Because, you know, these were gangsters. So they didn't care about social norms anyway. And they just saw a buck when they looked at a woman who wanted to come into a bar. Isn't that beautiful in a way? It is. It is the most beautiful thing. That, that, <laughs> I don't know. But... That is the to me. Well, that is kind of the that is the essence of my argument in the book, right there, distilled. Right. That's it. It's that scene. If you think about if you think about a speakeasy in the 1920s selling illegal alcohol to women who were not allowed in public elsewhere in public bars, are not allowed to dance, and you see racial integration in these spaces that are owned by criminals, and you don't see that anywhere else, right? Because practically illegal everywhere. That's else. right. That's right. And again, these Sicilian, they're, for, they're immigrants. So they don't care. They don't even know about the color line here, and they don't care about it. They just want to make money, as I said. Um, and they're criminals. So again, you yep. know, social norms are out the window, and whoever wants to pay can come on in, right? Well, that's the invitation of America for someone who doesn't have the internet back in the day. And, and, there's, and there's, there's this this place where you can be free and make money. But I'm, what I'm saying is that gangsters were the ones who fulfilled that pr promise of America first. They actually offered real freedom, real free spaces where you could actually commingle and trade regardless of social norms. Now, I agree with you that uh, we should celebrate uh, whores, slackers, and gangsters more. Okay. Uh, but there is something I'm worried about in your argument, and that is because you're basically arguing for a more tolerant society, right? You, you want us to, to not shame people 
for uh, being miscreants or mm-hmm. slackers or whores or gangsters. I guess so. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and my worry is that when you bring them into a normal society, they become utterly boring. Ah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, on this we agree. So one of the 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 question I think I get every single time I give a talk on my book, and this is now you know God knows more than a hundred times. I've got you know maybe two hundred times. The question I get every time is, who are the renegades today? And almost every, I have to think. It's hard to think. Well, I live in a country that has tried to practice democratic socialism now for a hundred years. And so I live in a country, and I'm a comedian. I'm supposed to be anti or at least amoral, Mm -hmm. right? That's that's my function. Yeah. I am a trickster. That's right. Uh, But um, I live in a country where they've already – they've – done away with all the norms and there's slackers and they never produce anything and and there's really? yeah and they're boring and and they still try to <laughs> to be the same person each and every one it's basically i live in the borg idea of a society do you okay. understand yeah. assimilate yeah, yeah and yeah. just and have sex and and uh, so right. sweden is uh, falling apart at the moment mm. Uh, and, and I find myself in a position where I have to go up on stage and be a moralist. Uh, do you understand? Yeah, because because I'm a terrible. contrarian. I'm a contrarian at heart. Well, don't do that anymore. Come but, here what? and be an amoralist. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'm more uh, needed more here than I suppose. I think so. You don't want to be. You can't be a comedian and a moralist. No. Uh, well, I thought I thought it was impossible. But wait but, a second. You're saying the problem is that they become too boring. That's the problem with Swedes. N- well, Swedes, I don't know. Maybe they've always been boring. But uh, what I say is uh, most of the things that make subcultures interesting is that they are absolutely forbidden, shameful. It's yep. sin. Gotcha. You, you know, if you take away shame from anal sex, then what the fuck is the point? What's the point of anal sex? Right? It doesn't feel dirty. It doesn't <laughs> feel sexy. I see. Right. You're just trying to wash all the dirt away. You know, it's and I work with dirt. So interestingly, that's a good, I like the theory. So basically... Porn is making sex boring, right? Well, right? Well, yes. Because it's, it's, well, it's taking the taboo away because everyone can see anal sex in any minute. Yes. Uh, and and, so and the Catholic Church, they might have had many flaws and tortured a lot of people, but you can't accuse them of not making sex sexy. <laughs> it's super sexy because it's super forbidden. They made Christ sexy. They, well, made, they yes. made Christianity sexy. That's a tricky. That's a real trick. Yes. Based on a Jew, that is tri- That's tricky. <laughs> Indeed. So do you think that the internal struggle within humanity is mm. between the individual and the collective? Yeah, that's, that's what I say. I mean, that's what I say is what my work is about. That's what I'm most interested in. If, you, if you're going to generalize at the highest level of abstraction, yeah, that's what I'm about. That's what I'm interested in anyway, <clears throat> is that struggle, which goes on not just between the individual, you, and society, but it, I think it usually goes on within us individually. So when the alarm clock goes off, next to my bed, mm-hmm. you know, like this morning, it's a struggle between me, the individual who wants to stay in bed and me, the social individual who knows I need to get out of bed because I have an interview in LA, right. To do work with. Right. Um, so that goes on all the time with us. And that's when you need self mastery as libertarian usually touts. What do I need? What is it called? Self mastery. Oh, self regulation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. The self regulating individual is what we call it in political science over here. Um, the, which is the core of classical liberalism, which is sort of one variant of libertarianism, right? The, at, the, at the heart of that, according to John Locke and Adam Smith, especially John Locke, is, the, is this moralistic, self-regulating, ascetic, puritanical person, right? Because 
he thought with good reason that to operate efficiently and productively and successfully in a market economy where everyone's competing against each other, you simply can't drink and you got to go to bed on time and you, you got to work hard all the time, et cetera, et cetera. So Locke is, Locke's work is full of moralism against even dancing. He's opposed to, he wrote a whole essay about dancing and how it's dangerous and shouldn't be taught to children. Now that's at the core of a wing of libertarianism that I'm not so fond of, as you might imagine, right? That's yes. the classical liberalism. And I think they're the classical liberals. I agree with them often. You almost always on economic policy and usually on sort of public policy generally, but they tend to be very boring. They tend to be in the suits and the ties and they tend to be religious and they tend to not have much fun. And they tend to look down on people who are, being free. Yes, um, using their freedom. Yeah. Enjoying like, it. Who are immoral or amoral according to their own sort of preconceived notions. But like, for instance, I have a, I'll say his name. Uh, there's a very famous libertarian in this country named Tom Woods, who has a, he's a friend of mine. He has a great show. I recommend it highly. I've learned much from Tom Woods and his show. I've been on his show a few times. Great guy. Uh, but he's one of these classical liberals who is also deeply conservative about cultural values and issues in this way for, I think for this reason. And so when I was on his show, I simply, he asked me who I would interview on my podcast and I mentioned sex workers and he blanched. I mean, and he later said that it was the most shocking thing, anything anyone had ever said on his show. Why? And all I did was mention that I have interviewed. I mean, you said you were going to interview them, not pay them for sex. Thank you. And that's all <laughs> I taught. I just said, I've had, a, I've had sex workers on my show and oh my gosh. So you know, it's he, I'm sure, would vote to legalize sex work, whereas I think he would, or should, if he's a true libertarian, but he ignores the issue entirely. So there, he's never had a sex worker on his show, and he's had like 2,000 episodes. Now, that seems to me, this is a trade that is made illegal by the state. I mean, any libertarian should be championing, right, the legalization of sex work, if you're a true libertarian, it seems yes. to me. So to not mention it at all, and you're a libertarian in this country, it seems to me that you've got a problem, you know, well, recon reconciling your ideology with some feelings that you have deep inside. I'm absolutely pro-freedom. I've always been, uh, but I've always also found it uh, kind of uh, strange that there is a paradox uh, mm -hmm. built into the concept of freedom mm -hmm. where in where you get absolute freedom you also have to take absolute responsibility mm -hmm. because okay. no one else will do it for you. It depends on what you want and what you're going for, what the objective is. Right. If you want, if you want a well-managed society, if you want an efficient society, then you're going to have to check your freedom in all sorts of ways. If you're interested in maximizing whatever it is you want in your own life, there are multiple strategies that can be employed, possibly infinite strategies. Right. But I, what I say is just leave the morality out of it. You decide what you value, what you want, and then let's figure out how to get it. Now, if that, your strategy to get what you want conflicts with me, it forces me to do things that I don't want to do or impinges on my freedom in some way or another, then you and I will have a fight, we'll have a struggle, and the resolution of that will determine who gets the thing, yes. right? But to me, that's how, it sh that's how society should basically operate. In instead of having an overseer, you know, managing us and deciding and resolving our conflict for us, I think we should do it ourselves. And hopefully there won't be a conflict. Hopefully maybe, maybe then maybe there won't be, right? Yes. Maybe our interests will coincide and then we'll ally ourselves and we'll work together to achieve this thing using work only as a means, not as a good in itself. That would be good, I think, at least if you don't have if you have any other job than mine. Mine is quite pleasurable. My, my, mine too. It just still requires a lot of work, but yeah. <laughs> no, it requires a lot of work, but I don't seem to mind doing it most of the time, right. except for the receipts part. Me too. Exactly. Me yeah. too. Fuck yeah. that How'd shit. You know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I find it interesting because uh, the Swedish national ideal that they strive for is not freedom; it's safety. Mm. Right? Is that uh, stated? Is that explicit? 
Yeah, well, we use the word trygghet. You don't really have it. It's like a combination between comfort and safety. Oh, yeah. But what it means in essence is that they want you to give all all your personal responsibility to the state in exchange wow. for safety. Wow. And as someone here once said, if you give up your freedom for safety, you will eventually end up with neither safety, uh, safety or freedom. Right. Yes, I think it was... Ben Franklin? Uh, certainly could have been. Yeah. He's not someone to trust, though. But yes. Uh, no, but, no. Well, you but know. That's wise. Yes, I agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. It's fascinating that that's, it's sort of explicit in Swedish culture, right? Well, that the value, they they explicitly value safety and what's the other thing? No. Se- security? Se- security, yes, yes. Or, and and or, they don't yeah. even, and freedom is not even a part of the mix or it's not part of the rhetoric. We don't talk a lot yeah. about freedom. No. You know what else is happening, I've noticed? In the United States of America, the discourse of freedom has been declining as well. You may not, I don't know, it seems to me that people don't talk about, they don't use the word. Why? Politicians, not less and less. It seems like politicians on the left and the right, both conser- uh, Democrats and Republicans, I just have heard freedom and liberty used less and less over the last That's quite worrisome. two or three decades. I think I'm right. I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, but I'm pretty sure it's just, it's not talked about. And are they talking more about safety and security? They're talking about hurt feelings and identities mostly. Oh, yes. I was going to ask you one last question, so we'll finally we get to it. You've yeah. started your own online university, mm-hmm. speaking about diversity. And when, why did you? Why did I start the university? Yes. Uh, because universities and I in this country don't get along and we haven't for a couple decades now. And we were both, it became very clear to both of us that we needed to dissolve that marriage. All of the universities in the United States and you. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Um, if you know anything about the academic world in the United States, you will know that there is almost 100% uniformity of general opinion on major political questions in the humanities and the social sciences. The sciences, hard sciences are a bit different, but where I come from, the humanities and social sciences, especially the humanities, which is where history and English are, um, and philosophy, um, it's, yeah, there's just... Because you're quite an interesting thinker, and you've published several interesting books that hasn't really been reviewed by academia. been, Been ignored. Yes, yeah. and in the cases they have not been ignored, they have been uh, Sorry, this, labeled this, as dangerous, right. irresponsible, and what was the um, improper? Improper, yeah. Yes. Yeah, sorry, the second one, Renegade History of the United States, was ignored by academic uh, reviewers. The first book was reviewed, but negatively, mostly, yes. Uh, but mostly, I'd say overall, they've ignored me. They just let me do my own thing, because they don't need to dress me. They, they, well, you they taught run, at Barnard, right? Yes, for five, six, six years, yes. And you wanted tenure. But they denied it to Correct. Because of your improperness, dangerousness, and, and yes. I was told that. I was also told later that it was also because I was a white man. So there's mul- multiple reasons. They don't see the black person I'm sitting across I, from. But, but, I, but I didn't but, understand it. I, I just said to but them. But isn't that against your civil rights? Uh, it's, a, it's an absolute clear-cut violation of the Civil Rights Act. How so? Can you explain to the sweet <laughs> just, listener, but just briefly, what discriminating the... against someone in employment because of their race or gender is illegal, according to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was considered to be is considered to be sort of the pinnacle and the great achievement of the civil rights movement. We mentioned Martin Luther King earlier. Civil Rights Act was basically the capstone of the civil rights movement, right, and made that illegal. Discriminating against someone in housing or, or employment because of their race or gender or their religion or their political preferences is illegal in this country. And it is practiced 
that that act is violated every single day in almost every, I'd say, in virtually every single college and university in this country in various ways. But how can they get away with it? How can they keep acting this way with impunity? Number, well, they don't. First of all, they get sued on a regular basis, but we don't know about this. I did find out because I've had friends and administrations at these school, schools I've worked at that most colleges with the means, which is most of them, have a special fund set aside just to settle lawsuits with faculty and students who have been discriminated against because of their race or gender. So that's one way they get it. That's one way they get away with it. The other is that it is considered to be virtuous to have a diverse student body and a faculty. In fact, that's all it seems to me they care about often. That is the number one priority in universities is diversity, diversity, diversity. And this is just a plain fact, especially over the last 10 to 20 years. I've seen that. Um, and they will, they will sacrifice just about anything to get diversity, include, you know, any intellectual quality, any intellectual diversity. It really doesn't matter. I've seen it again and again and again. I can give your listeners one example. This is the most recent job I applied for. It was a school I was, had been teaching at for years, Occidental College. I'd been teaching there for five years. There was another guy who had been teaching there for nine years. A tenure track position came open in modern American history. That's what we both taught. Okay. He had a book, well-reviewed book by a university press. I had two books at the time. We both had sterling teaching credentials. We had both been there for many, many years teaching diligently. Um, we were not even given uh, an interview. We weren't even considered for the position. All four of the finalists, there were 600 people who applied for this job, all four of them. None of the four had a PhD. They were all graduate students still. They had no experience. They had no publications at all. They were all African-American. Now, I mean, if, if, you want to, if you reversed, the other guy, by the way, was white, <laughs> I was talking about. If you, want, if you reverse the races here, right, and he and I were black, and the four finalists were white people who didn't have PhDs, everybody in this country we, would be up in arms. That's obvious act of racist discrimination yes. against us. Seems clear cut, but you know, and we actually had a, attorneys approach us who wanted the case. I just didn't, I didn't pursue it, but it's a common, it's, it's not common. It's daily. It's daily. There's racial racist, I'm sorry, racist and sexist discrimination practiced by colleges and universities in this country every single day in admissions, in faculty hiring, in promotion, in tenure appointments, all of it across the board. I yes. consider this idea of diversity where they uh, try to look at equity rather than uh, equality. Right. I consider it a socialist idea. I yeah. think it yeah. uh, comes from uh, partly Sweden, actually, sure. because we started with what we call gender mainstreaming back mm -hmm. in 1994. Oh, it's social engineering. Yes. And Swedes are very good at that, I've heard. Yes. We, well, we have a Swedish gender equality agency. Right. Yeah. Their goal is to make everything 50-50. Yeah. Yeah, 50% men, 50% women. That's right. Right. Social engineering. Funnily enough, the entire leadership is female. I know. 100. You, you know this. I or? do. How I come? Do. Who's been gossiping? I might, might have listened to Aaron Flam at some point. Ah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want to t thank you so much for come, stopping by the podcast. I hope to have you as a guest again. I hope to get you to Sweden, or at least I know Alexander Bard really wants to get you That's to Sweden. That's what I hear, yeah. Yes. Alexander, let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> get me on American Idol. We'll yes. make a deal. And I have a T-shirt for you. Oh, awesome. Yes, it's uh, this one. Cool. What does this say? It says, Crush Socialism. How do, you, how do you pronounce that? Krossa Socialismen. All right. And this is uh, my silhouette. Uh -huh. uh, me work. Uh, this is me walking in the May Day parade in Sweden <laughs> uh, with with a sign that says Crush this socialism. on the front, on the back. 
Ah. It says socialism is evil, but then I put a heart there. Ah, to so confuse that, them. No, well, or partly <laughs> to confuse them, which is quite easy to do. Uh, but also because I want to remind people we don't want to crush people, but ideas in this case. I see. So you're not, but the, the color red is a little scary. Uh, I know, but it's also the color of sex. It, it, sim- uh, it symbolizes three things, right? Communism, sex, and blood. True. All dirty and in some ways sexy. There you go. Yes. (laughs) Thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism with this episode's guest, Thaddeus Russell. If you want to know more about Thaddeus, please visit his website. Links to both it and the news articles referenced in the introduction can be found on aronflam.com. That's aronflam.com. Thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism via Patreon, where you will find me by searching for my name, Aaron Flam, that's Aaron with one A and Flam with one M, or supporting it via PayPal, Bitcoin, or Swish, 0768943737. 0768943737. Every donation helps, and you will find links to your preferred way of support in the description of this episode, regardless of what platform you're using. There's also a link to my webpage, aaronflam.com, where you will find t-shirts with uplifting messages, such as Crush Socialism, Socialism is Evil, or Your Feelings Are Hurting My Thoughts, which is this podcast's creed. At aaronflam.com, you will also find my book, This is a Swedish Tiger, albeit only in Swedish for now. This is a Swedish Tiger reveals what the Swedes really did during the Second World War and how their cooperation with Islamists never really stopped. By the time you hear me say this, the English translation is done, but I'm still looking for publishers in different countries. This is a Swedish Tiger has sold out two editions in Swedish by now, so finding a publisher shouldn't be too hard. And if you are one listening to this, please get in touch via, for instance, Twitter. The audiobook in Swedish as well will be released by the end of February and the ebook around the same time. All will be available at aronflam.com. My name is Aaron Flam and until next time, have a good unit of time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.